is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Frank DeVito was just a 19-year-old Coast Guard member and one of the first Americans to storm Omaha Beach in the Normandy region of France on June 6, 1944. This is a rare opportunity to hear firsthand an account of what happened that day. And be warned, this story might not be appropriate for young listeners or those who are sensitive to the often gruesome details of war. Listener discretion is advised. Well, we were very close in that family. I had two brothers and a sister. And we lived in a neighborhood like, like today. You know, the mall is four miles away. Get in the car and go to a mall. When we lived in Brooklyn, everything was a block away. If you wanted to go to a grocery store or, or a drugstore or anything like that, what you do is walk one block and everything was there for you. And then, of course, I went to a high school called Lafayette High School. It was a wonderful school. And I only put three and a half years in there. I, I left the high school in my senior year. I think we were, it must have been about 16 boys. We all, we all volunteered at the same time. Each one of us took a different, either Army or Navy or Coast Guard, whatever it may be. And... Uh, my mom, God bless my mother, she had three sons. My brother was in the army, and he went as far with in the third army, with Patton's army. He went into Germany. And of course, I did the Atlantic and the Pacific. And my kid brother, we were so happy that he missed the Second World War. Then the Korean War came along, and he volunteered to go into the Marines. He was in a chosen reservoir when the Chinese hordes came over the top. And luckily he survived, he was a BAR man. So my, my poor mother, she had three kids, all combat. I don't know how she did it. My mother was a very strong person. When Pearl Harbor happened, everybody was patriotic. Everybody wanted to go into the service and do their part. And, and I, I first started enlisting at 17, but my mom wouldn't sign for me. And I wanted to get in before the war ended. I, I thought in a year the, the war would end. I didn't know it was going to last four years. So I was anxious to get in. And I have no regrets. I've, I met some very, very wonderful people. And I lost a lot of people. When you go into the military, what they do... They break you down. The, the first day that you're in, either the master sergeant or the chief petty officer says, I want you to forget everything that you know up till today, because from today on, you're going to be military, you're going to do it our way. And it's very ironic because today a lot of kids are committing suicide. The kids from Vietnam and Iraq, and I, they, they, we're losing a lot of kids from suicide. And I think the reason is because when we went in the service, we did two or three weeks basic training, and they taught us how to be military. And when the war ended, 
They gave me a piece of paper and $86 and put me on a train and sent me home. I was a lost person. We were all lost. They broke us down to, to bring us into the service, but they didn't do anything to, you know, make it easy for us coming out. They should have like a basic training when you leave the service. That's why a lot of kids today, they come home and they're lost. The, the first time I had liberty, I remember I had liberty. I couldn't wait to go home to see my mom. I had two weeks. To, and I went there and the first day I was very happy. I saw my mom and my brothers and sisters. The next day my mom went to work. My, my kid brother went to school. My dad went to work. And there was nobody in my neighborhood my age because they were all in the service. And I was lost. I couldn't wait to go back to my ship. I was so happy to get liberty. And after two days, I was happy to go back. You know, a lot of people don't realize D-Day, they wrote a lot of books and a lot of movies about it. The whole D-Day was only 18 hours. We dropped the boats at 4 o'clock in the morning, and 10 o'clock at night, the beach was ours. It was only 18 hours, the whole thing. People make a big spectacle out of it, you know, D-Day, D-Day. It was 18 hours, that's all it was. But we did lose 2,000 men on the beach. I said men, I shouldn't say men. 2,000 kids. We were all kids. We were all kids. We were too young to drink. We were too young to vote. We weren't too young to die. 18 years old, 19, 20 years old, they were kids. Some of them didn't even shave, never shaved. Yeah. And, you, and you're fighting Germans that were in the war for four years. Some of them came out of Russia. They were seasoned. And with all that, the season, us 18, 20-year-old kids, we whipped their ass. Sorry, I shouldn't use that language. What I remember the most. I'm going to tell you a story. I don't tell it to anybody because it's so hard for me. On the first wave, my job was to drop the ramp. And the machine guns were hitting the ramp in the front of the ramp. But I knew when I dropped the ramp, the machine gun was going to come into the boat. But I had to drop the ramp because the troops had to get out. This is the first wave. So when I dropped the ramp, the Germans had 14 machine guns, MG-42 machine guns, capable of 160 rounds a minute. When I dropped the ramp, all those machine guns opened up. And in the front of my boat, seven, eight, 10, 15 kids, I don't know, they just went down like, like you're cutting wheat. And you're listening to the voice of Frank DeVita. And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this man's story and so many others who served in the biggest and most important war of all time. Frank DeVita's story here on Our American Stories.
we return to Our American Stories, we're listening to Frank DeVita's first-hand account of storming Omaha Beach on D-Day back in 1944 and 70-plus years later, remembering every emotional detail. When we left off, DeVita had opened the ramp on the front of his landing craft when the soldiers on board were struck with heavy machine gun fire from the Germans. Listener discretion again is advised. Here's Frank. Now, I was three-quarters of the way back because I had to take the ramp and drop the ramp. So I was three-quarters of the way back. So I had some protection because the kids that were in front of me, the troops that were in front of me, they absorbed the bullets that were supposed to hit me. And they were, they were falling down. And there was two kids, stragglers, I call them stragglers, they kept back because they didn't want to be in the front of the boat because they knew they would die. So they stayed back, and they stayed near me, which is a bad thing because besides the machine guns on the beach, there was a machine gun in the hill, and they were shooting down from the hill. So that was in a crossfire. And these two boys, since they stayed close to me, they were drawing fire to me. Now, the first boy was about four feet away from me. He got a machine gun in his stomach. His stomach was taken out of his. Luckily, that kid, somehow, he survived the war, even though his stomach was ripped open. The second kid, he was about two, two feet away from me. He wasn't so lucky. The machine gun took his helmet off and part of his skull. And he was crying, help me, help me, help me. And he fell on my feet. And I couldn't help him. I had no morphine. I had nothing to help him. So the only thing I could do, I started praying for him. Our Father who art in heaven. And I never finished the prayer. And it seemed to soothe him. He stopped, he stopped screaming, help me, help me, when I said the prayer. Then I reached down, and I, I touched his hand. I touched his hand because I wanted him to know he wasn't alone. What little strength that he had, he put his fingers around my thumb and squeezed my thumb. It was almost as if he was saying, it's all right, it's all right. But I knew he was going to die. And at that moment, he spit up blood, and he died. He died. He was a kid, probably 18, 19, 20 years old. He had red hair. He died right in front of me. And I, I went into shock, I'll be honest, I went into shock. He was just a little boy, just a little boy. <laughs> I went into shock and I passed out. And I, I came to, I don't know, maybe a minute, two minutes, I don't know how long it was. And, and when I passed out, when I came to rather, the coxswain was yelling, pick the ramp up, let's get out of here, because we were in a crossfire. 
and I pulled the lever and nothing happened. I pulled it the second time, nothing happened. I pulled it the third time, then I put it on automatic. It never came up. So my job now was to take that ramp. Every, everybody was depending upon me. So I had to get to the ramp. I was three quarters of the way back. I couldn't even see the ramp because there were dead bodies in front of me. So I had to crawl over the dead bodies. And I must have been a madman because I was crying. And I'm saying to these kids that are dead, forgive me for, for walking over you. And I started going towards the ramp and somehow another kid came along. I don't, to this day, I don't know who it is, either a crewman or maybe another soldier, I don't know. And we started crawling towards the ramp. And when we got towards the ramp, I realized why the ramp wouldn't come up. There was two dead soldiers on the ramp. They never got out of the boat. So they were waterlogged because they were on the ramp. Plus they had 90 pounds of, each soldier had 90 pounds of equipment on their back. There was no way I was going to move these, this guy. I weighed 125 pounds. I couldn't lift him up. So what I did, I pointed to his belt, to the other guy, and I grabbed the belt, and I started pulling. And when I pulled, he moved about two or three inches, and right then and there, I knew I could do this. I could do this. So I, little by little, by little, probably took 40 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't know. I got him off the ramp, and the ramp went up. Now the coxswain had to get the boat. There was all obstacles in the water. There was mines in the water. And we were right in the middle of them. And there was telephone poles. And the top of the telephone poles was the mine. Just sitting there, it wasn't, it wasn't nailed down or screwed down. It was just sitting on top of the telephone pole. If your boat nudged that telephone pole, the mine would come in your boat, killing everybody. Now, these were not an ordinary mine. These were telemines. A telemine, when they explode, they don't explode up. They explode sideways, take a man's legs off. So the coxswain, God bless him, he was so good. He got us, he got us out of this mess. And we headed back towards my ship. And we had a lot of boys that were wounded pretty bad. They were crying, Mama, Mama, Mama. And when we headed towards my ship, we, we saw this big white ship with a red cross on the side. It was a hospital ship. So instead of going towards my ship, we went towards the hospital ship because we figured if we can get some of these wounded guys aboard that hospital ship, Maybe we could save some lives. If we could save one life, it was worth it. So we pulled alongside the hospital ship, and two angels jumped in my boat. I called them angels because they did something we couldn't do. We were spent. We couldn't do anything. And what they did, they peeled off the dead soldiers to get to the wounded soldiers.
and they were able to get about seven. I don't remember exactly. Could have been seven, could have been eight, I don't know. And they, they got these wounded boys, and they put them in the hospital ship. And I said to myself, I said, thank God, these kids stand a chance. Maybe they're going to live this day. And with that, the two guys that were on the boat went back to the hospital ship. And we went back to my ship. When we got back to my ship, we still had wounded aboard. Not serious, but we had wounded aboard. And we had dead aboard the boat. And so when we got close to my boat, they dropped a sled so we could put the dead bodies and the wounded. And then the crane took them up. And somebody yelled, I want one man from every boat to come aboard to be interrogated. So I got on the sled and I went aboard. When I went aboard, I'm on the ship. Stay with me a minute, stay with me. I'm alive. I'm alive. And I gotta make a decision. Do I stay aboard the ship and let somebody take my place? Or do I go back into into the belly of the beast? I faced those machine guns again. And I said to myself, this is what I was trained to do. And I made 15 trips. They, they told me I didn't know that. They told me we made 15 trips with my boat. The PA-2628 made 15 trips. Do I stay on the boat and let someone else take my place, or do I go back into the belly of the beast? And my goodness, that that we had young men do this for us, for the world. It's just remarkable. When we come back, more of Frank DeVita's story, his recollection of Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories with Frank DeVita's story. By the way, if you have stories of loved ones or your own of any service in the war, any American war, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. This is why we're here and why we do what we do. So you can hear ordinary Americans' voices with us not getting in the way. And with that, let's return to Frank and his story. When we left off, his unit had taken a large number of casualties. After realizing the unit was caught in a crossfire, they were able to retreat and find a Red Cross hospital ship to help those who survived the attack. Let's continue. So then I had to be interrogated. It was a, a, a naval officer and a sergeant. He had a lot of stripes on him, great big sergeant. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, son, that hand was like a hug. I needed a hug. 
and he touched me. And he says, son, he says, those machines can only fire so long, then they have to change the barrel. You wait. And when they're changing the barrel, that's when you drop the ramp again. So I said, all right. I said, how much time do I have? He said, seven to 10 seconds. That's not much time. But I did like he told me. And I waited and I waited. And while I was waiting, the troops aboard the boat started screaming, let the ramp down, we got to get out of here. They felt closed and they wanted to go out and be killed. <sighs> so I waited and I waited and I waited. And all of a sudden, there was a lull. They had to change the barrels. And I dropped the ramp. And this time I got eight guys on the beach. Of course, they were cut down immediately. I'd rather not go any further. For 70 years, I never mentioned it. My family, when we were on the beach with Tom Brokaw, and Tom Brokaw says to me, he says, I understand you have a big book with all pictures of the battles that you fought. And my son said, what book? I never told anybody anything. It was too hard to talk about. So somehow, Tom Brokaw, he got it out of me. He asked me a few questions. And once the genie was out of the bottle, you can't put it back. And then after that, I wanted to talk about it. And I go to seminars, I go to Columbine High School, and I talk to these young kids. I went to the USAA, the insurance company, and I talked to them. I wanted to get out now so they don't forget what we had to go through. We fought for peace. The Germans fought to kill, and we fought for peace. You know, we have a tendency in, in this country to put the young generation down. We got a great generation coming up. These, these kids are great. They're, smart. They're much smarter than I was, than all, all of us were. And I love, I love talking to them because they ask very pertinent questions. One of the kids asked me if I was killed during the war. <laughs> but other than that, they asked some very, very, very good questions. So I could see I'm getting through to them. About uh, three or four months ago, the church that I went to, that I go to, the Monsi, he knew that I was in the war. And he said, Frank, he says, how about talking to the congregation? So I said, all right. And the whole church was there. And I gave my spiel like I just told you and stuff like that. And then there was question and answers. And woman raised, one woman raised her hand and she said to me, why don't you write a book? And I thought about it. But I, I couldn't write it because while I'm writing, the tears would come down on the paper and I probably have a little blob of paper. So I decided not to write a book. So, but I will talk about it. I want to I get it out there so people don't forget. It's like the Holocaust. We should never forget. We should never forget. I can't understand how a group of educated people, the Germans, these people went to the opera. 
They took their kids to Sunday school. They went on picnics. These are not Mongolians. These were educated people. How could they do such a thing? How could they do such a thing? I, I, I still cry to this day. Many a nights I'm, I'm in bed, I can't sleep. And I think of that kid with the red hair and the side of his face was shot to the side away. He was a young kid. And I think of that kid. He was only one. There was hundreds around me that died or were wounded. But this one kid touched my heart because he fell to my feet. And he was asking me, help me, help me. I couldn't help him. I couldn't help myself. How could I help him? Well, I'm, I'm going to be 94 in May. So there's, there's not going to be any more Frank DeVitas. So we got to get the word out before we're gone. Because 10 years down the road, there's not going to be any Frank DeVitas or anybody that was in Normandy or Pearl Harbor or what. It's going to be forgotten history. So we shouldn't let it die. And again, that was Frank DeVita, and we will not let it die. And that's what we do here on this show, is preserve these memories and stories of the people and the events that made this country great. We fought for peace. The Germans fought to kill, Frank said. We fought for peace. Seventy years, I've never talked about it. It was hard to talk about it. But I want to get it out there so people never forget. And my goodness, when he was talking about the Germans, how could it happen that a country that produced opera and so many beautiful and remarkable things and so many inventions could do such a thing to other human beings? And by the way, when we think of World War II, we rightly think of the heroism of members of the U.S. Army, Army Air Forces, Navy, and Marine Corps too. But let's not forget about the Americans who served in the Merchant Marines, and as you've been hearing from Frank DeVita, the U.S. Coast Guard. Coast Guardsmen were involved in the war from the start. Half of the Coast Guard's personnel were deployed, manning hundreds of vessels supporting combat operations in every theater, from the Pacific to North Africa and to Europe. Coast Guardsmen escorted vessels across the U-boat-infested waters of the Atlantic and landed soldiers and Marines in amphibious operations, just like the invasion of Normandy. At Normandy, Coast Guardsmen manned transports and rescue craft along the beaches and landing men and vehicles, too. But Coasties also rescued 1,468 men who would have otherwise drowned in the surf. They fought and died alongside the men of our other military branches and were privileged to bring you one of their voices, U.S. Coast Guardsman and veteran Frank DeVita's story. And if you are a student of World War II or want to bring more people to an understanding of World War II, there's no better way than to just hear the stories from the men themselves. When you bring out the maps and you start to talk about history, it's one thing. And my goodness, no one does this better than the World War II Museum in New Orleans. You get a dog tag and you swipe it, and the next thing you know, you're walking in a soldier's, in a soldier's boots. There's the road to the Pacific, which is just remarkable. And then there's also the road to Berlin. They're two separate museums combined into one And it's just, well, you just have to get there. And by the way, if you can't get there, there's so much great stuff online. The World War II Museum, just Google it. And it is 
truly, I think, the very best museum in this country. And by the way, New Orleans is a heck of a city, too. So you make it a two- or three-day family trip, and you'll eat some great food, read and see some great history, and feel, feel the full impact of the stories that they've collected remarkably and beautifully. Again, at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Frank DeVita's story, here on Our American Story. continue here with our American stories and we love telling stories from the great American literature canon and today we're bringing you another you've probably read Walt Whitman or at least you were supposed to in your high school English class but even if you've heard of Leaves of Grass you've probably never heard this tale that Hillsdale College professor Kelly Franklin brings us it was winter in 1862 and Americans were fighting our nation's civil war. In mid-December, the Union suffered a disaster at the Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The entrenched Confederates cut down wave after wave of Union soldiers, leaving the Northern Army with 13,000 casualties, more than double those of the Southern defenders. From the Union standpoint, things looked pretty bleak for the formerly United States of America. News of the casualties hit the papers right away, and on December 16th, the American writer Walt Whitman learned that his brother George had been wounded at Fredericksburg. With no other information, Whitman set out to find his brother. He searched the hospitals in D.C. with no luck until a friend lent him money and got him a pass to the front, where George, if he were still alive, might be found. Then, in Falmouth, Virginia, Whitman located his brother safe and sound with only a minor wound to his face. But Whitman also saw something else, something he never forgot. Outside a field hospital, Whitman saw a heap of amputated limbs, enough to fill a one-horse cart. Horrified, he wrote in his diary. At the foot of a tree, immediately in front, a heap of feet, legs, arms, and human fragments cut bloody, black and blue, swelled and sickening. By 1862, Walt Whitman had already achieved some fame and some notoriety as a poet that celebrated the human body. I am the poet of the body. He had written in his 1855 book, Leaves of Grass. And I am the poet of the soul. The man's body is sacred and the woman's body is sacred. But in that grisly moment outside the field hospital, Whitman got his first real glimpse of the human cost of the Civil War. It wasn't long before he knew what he wanted to do about it. In January of 1863, Whitman returned to Washington, D.C., where he began perhaps the greatest undertaking of his life. While the war raged on, Whitman threw himself into the task of visiting the sick and wounded men, both Northerners and Southerners, who languished in the Civil War hospitals. The Union already had many doctors and nurses, but Whitman intuitively knew that people need more than medical treatment to get well. 
companionship, comfort, morale boosting, even a kind word. And as a volunteer, Whitman could provide that to the soldiers. He worked a part-time job in the mornings and spent the afternoons and evenings in the hospitals. He talked with the men, sat with them. He brought a satchel full of little gifts, candy, clothes, fruit, money, tobacco, stamps, and paper for writing letters. When the weather was hot, he brought them ice cream. While in the hospitals, Whitman wrote down the names and descriptions of the soldiers in his notebooks, along with anything special they asked for. Henry Benton, Company E, 7th Ohio Volunteer, Ward K, Bed 44. Wants a little jelly and an orange. Wounded last Sunday at Chancellorsville in leg. I saw the bullet and a piece of the bone. Stout hearty Ohio boy. Henry Eberly, Bed 8, Ward K, Company H, 28th Pennsylvania Volunteers. Wants a German prayer book. Wounded in the left shoulder pretty bad. Not all of his visits were cheerful. Of a man named Hiram Johnson from the 157th New York Volunteers, Whitman wrote in his notebook, This is the bed of death. Although he supported the Union, Whitman left the politics of the war outside the hospital doors and treated the wounded equally. In his memoir of the Civil War, Whitman later described taking care of a 19-year-old boy from Baltimore whose right leg had been amputated. He writes, As I was lingering, soothing him in his pain, he says to me suddenly, I hardly think you know who I am. I don't wish to impose upon you. I am a rebel soldier. I said I did not know that, but it made no difference. Visiting him daily for about two weeks after that while he lived, death had marked him and he was quite alone. Many of these Civil War soldiers died far from family and home. Some of them even died unknown and unidentified. It was the era before dog tags and DNA testing. In March of 1864, Whitman described one of these cases in a letter to his mother. Whitman wrote of the arrival of a train carrying sick and wounded soldiers. Mother, it was a dreadful night, pretty dark, the wind gusty, and the rain fell in torrents. One poor boy, he seemed to me quite young, he was quite small. He groaned some as the stretcher bearers were carrying him along, and again as they carried him through the hospital gate. They set down the stretcher and examined him, and the poor boy was dead. The doctor came immediately, but it was all of no use. The worst of it is, too, that he is entirely unknown. There was nothing on his clothes or anyone with him to identify him, and he is altogether unknown. Mother, it is enough to rack one's heart such things. Very likely his folks will never know in the world what has become of him. And many men died unknown in the war. Many were hastily buried or lost altogether in the chaos and aftermath of battle. This meant that families and friends were denied many of the rituals of grief. But Walt Whitman was also at the height of his career as a poet, and during the war he would write poems of grief and mourning that would help him and the nation express those terrible losses. Walt Whitman had worked with words and language for most of his life. Born on Long Island, he supported himself from a very young age, working at a printing shop, in a law office, and as a teacher. But he soon found his way to authorship, writing journalism, conventional poems, and fiction. Then, in 1855, Whitman published his experimental book, Leaves of Grass, 
which violated all the current norms of poetry and celebrated the full range of human life, from democracy to sexuality, writing in powerful free verse about the body, the soul, nature, and city life, and the labors of working class men and women. But now, Whitman had a war to write about, and at the end of it, he published a book of war poems called Drum Taps. In one of his best poems, Vigil Strange, I kept on the field one night. Whitman recreates an imaginary moment of grief and burial for the fallen dead. The poetic speaker describes seeing a young soldier struck down in the heat of battle. Unable to stop, for the conflict rages on around them, the narrator charges ahead, but returns that night to keep vigil for a boy he calls both son and comrade. Long there and then in vigil I stood, dimly around me the battlefield spreading. Vigil wondrous and vigil sweet there in the fragrant silent night. The speaker stays with the body all night. Till at latest lingering of the night, indeed just as the dawn appeared, my comrade I wrapped in his blanket enveloped well his form, folded the blanket well, tucking it carefully overhead and carefully under feet. And there and then, and bathed by the rising sun, my son in his grave, in his rude dug grave, I deposited. Ending my vigil strange with that, vigil of night and battlefield dim, vigil for boy of responding kisses, never again on earth responding. Vigil for comrade swiftly slain, vigil I never forget how as day brightened, I rose from the chill ground and folded my soldier well in his blanket, and buried him where he fell. Like in most of his poems, the soldier remains nameless, which means that he could be anyone, known or unknown, Yankee or rebel, any of the more than 600,000 men who perished in the war. Whitman continued to visit the hospitals on and off throughout the war. He once estimated that he had visited somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 soldiers. He also wrote that, after his time in the hospitals, the pages of his notebooks were actually stained with soldiers' blood. Walt Whitman would have a long and fruitful life and career as a writer, right up to his death in 1892. But he always thought about his hospital years as something central to his life. Those three years I consider the greatest privilege and satisfaction, and of course the most profound lesson of my life. Those years of hospital visits represent a tremendous act of service to his fellow Americans during a time of war. While we tend to remember him as one of America's great poets, Walt Whitman's sacrificial charity during the Civil War may be his greatest legacy. But we can also be thankful he was a writer, although he once claimed that the real war will never get in the books. Walt Whitman's diaries, letters, poems, and memoirs constitute a powerful eyewitness account, a moving record of one man's mind and heart during this bloody chapter in the story of American history. And great job on that, Robbie, and thank you to Hillsdale professor Kelly Franklin for telling us about a great man and a part of his life so few people know. And how moving when that young man, a rebel soldier, said to him, I am a rebel soldier. And he said, I didn't know that, but it made no difference. And we should all be learning from that day to day in life that Whitman was there to just attend to the needs of the fallen. 
And Hillsdale College, by the way, this is, this is what you learn there, and this is why we work so carefully and closely with them and cultivate this kind of material for you and for your families. And if you want to learn more about Hillsdale, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu for their free and terrific online courses. Kelly Franklin's story, Walt Whitman's story, the story of the American Civil War in a way you hadn't heard it before. And by the way, in a nation of 31,600,000 fell, 31,600,000 dead. This is Our American Stories. with our American stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a dying patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old. Ph.D., scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes, which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus I said to her, Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, 
The patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body, only eight hours after we'd told her, that she had this incurable illness and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me, yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why, without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer, which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, and her nieces whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, 
utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And this next story comes to us from John Elfner. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School. And that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. John is beginning his 20th year of teaching high school students. And that's no duck walk, folks, if you've raised them, if you've been around them. But it's also a joy. And today, he enlightens the rest of us. Friday night and we're in the south suburbs of Chicago. We're at a high school football game. The stands are packed, the students and fans are excited for the opening kickoff, and the marching band is playing the school's fight song. On the field is Coach Ted Venegas. Hey Coach, who's your favorite president? Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president because he saved football. That may seem like an odd claim, but Venegas is not just a coach. He's also a U.S. history teacher. and He knows the intimate connection between Teddy Roosevelt and football. You see, the modern game of football is nothing like the game in the early 1900s. The early game of football is a lot more like violent rugby than the game that we know today. You can see some of the early games on film, including what claims to be the first recorded game between Princeton and Yale. It's not much to look at. Just 11 burly guys wearing very little protective equipment slamming into each other on the line. On most plays, the ball carrier runs into the scrum, is attacked by the defense, which itself is being mauled by big offensive linemen, typically ending up in a very large pile of very large young men. Presuming no one is maimed on the play, all 22 players get up, no huddle, line up again, and on to the next play. Historian Brian Ingracia, author of the book The Rise of the Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big-Time Football, talks about the early game of football. College athletes have figured out ways to win very, very efficiently, but also in ways that are very kind of boring and also very potentially dangerous. So you've got the flying wedge, which is a play where you've got, uh, you know, one player with a number of other players in front of him running down the field. And this can be very, very dangerous. And they used to refer to this kind of football for the forward pass as kind of five yards in a cloud of dust. And passing the ball was illegal. Every play was a running play. On most plays, the ball carrier ran straight through the middle of the line. Players and coaches began to figure out more effective ways to physically move bodies around to get their ball carrier through that line. But with limited rules and little regard for safety, the game got really rough. There's a very famous case in 1897 where a University of Georgia player named Richard Vaughn Gammon, he actually died in a game played in Atlanta between the University of Georgia and the University of Virginia. And there's a moment in 1897 where the state of Georgia came very, very close actually to outlawing college football. Not surprisingly, this collision of 22 players, play after play, led to frequent injuries, some of them fatal. 
Young men are dying on the field. Oftentimes when they are, it's traumatic brain injuries, concussions, spinal injuries. Sometimes they're, they die immediately on the field. Sometimes they might get injured and they might not die for another week or two weeks. There's this growing concern around the country that this game has become very violent and is killing these young men. And over the next decade, things got worse. In 1905 alone, 18 high school and college football players died while playing the game. Dozens of others were severely injured, and the rest were just happy to escape with their lives. The violence of the game was unacceptable. With America's young men dying and being maimed on the field, football became something that major universities could no longer tolerate or sponsor. Both Yale and Harvard were considering canceling their programs. But then an unlikely savior stepped in, President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a fan of football. He saw it as a way to season young men. Roosevelt had wanted to play when he was a Harvard man, but his asthma kept him from being involved. He said of football, In life, as in a football game, the principle to follow is hit the line hard. Don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. His toughness is legendary. Teddy popularized the term the strenuous life. He describes what he meant by that in an 1899 speech. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. And this was more than just talk. The stories of T.R. living the strenuous life are nearly endless, but here are a few of my favorites. First, he maintained a strict physical regimen, going so far as to box with a sparring partner in the White House. He referred to boxing as a condensed way to fit exercise into his busy schedule. And T.R. was no boxing hack. He had boxed during college on Harvard's intramural boxing squad. But his pursuit of boxing into his 50s ultimately cost him. In one sparring session, he sustained an injury to his left eye and lost his vision in that eye permanently. Accordingly, I thought it better to acknowledge that I had become an elderly man and would have to stop boxing. I then took up jujitsu for a few years. A second presidential physical pastime Roosevelt enjoyed was called single stick. It is what it sounds like. Two opponents armed with a single stick whack each other with that single stick. Roosevelt and his good friend, Major General Leonard Wood, regularly engaged in this practice. In a nod to the danger of the game, they would wrap pillows around themselves for protection. But that didn't always do the trick. One time, Roosevelt got whacked in the head by General Wood's stick and suffered a large bump in a black eye. No problem for Roosevelt, it was merely evidence of his living the strenuous life. By the way, care to guess which sport Wood played in college? Yup, football. But I saved the best story for last, and I'm going to let another figure that knows a lot about leadership in sports, just like Roosevelt, tell the story. Pat Williams is the vice president of the Orlando Magic, and has written a book on leadership called 21 Great Leaders. He tells my favorite story about TR. Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car... Uh, a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the blow of the bullet. And they were ro- wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, Take me to the auditorium! And the next thing you know, Roosevelt is standing up at the podium telling the audience exactly what just happened. 
I've just been shot. The bullet is in me now, so I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. The crowd thought he was joking, but then Roosevelt pulled back his jacket to reveal the blood all over his white shirt. And then he exclaimed, When he telegrammed his wife to assure her that he was okay, he described the bullet wound as... Trivial. Trivial? Are any bullet wounds trivial? Well, maybe when you're Teddy Roosevelt living this strenuous life, some of them are. So what does all this have to do with football? Roosevelt saw football as a way to develop young men in this strenuous life. I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. But not everyone agreed. By 1905, the Prohibition movement was gaining momentum. No, not the Prohibition of Alcohol, the Prohibition of Football. John J. Miller, author of the book The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, talks about this movement. A lot of people are becoming concerned about the brutality and violence of the sport. They're looking at this and they're, they're, they're saying this is, this is unacceptable in advanced societies like our own. Gladiatorial combat in the Roman amphitheater. And we are not barbarians in 20th century America. Therefore, we should banish football. Newspapers start to write articles about the evils of football, and a Cincinnati newspaper goes so far as to publish a cartoon titled The Grim Reaper Smiles on the Goalpost, which depicts the angel of death reclining on the crossbar overlooking a pile of bodies on the field. The people who believed this created a social and political movement. They were led by the president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot, Uh, But others joined this movement as well. Lots of people in higher education were involved. Newspapers were involved. Muckraking journalists were involved. And this movement is no idle threat. Three major programs, Columbia, Duke, and Northwestern, cancel their program. Harvard is on the verge of doing the same, with Harvard's president referring to the game as more brutalizing than prize fighting, cockfighting, or bullfighting. Even Roosevelt's own Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, a future president, threatens to dismiss any West Point football players if they engage in too much violence on the football field. Some schools even replace football with rugby because rugby was less brutal. So football is facing a genuine crisis of extinction. Could football survive the growing movement to ban the sport? And when we come back, we'll find out the answer to that question. And we're listening to one of our contributors. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburb of Chicago, and that's John Elfner doing the storytelling. When we come back, Roosevelt saves football? More of that story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to sign up for all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week, our newsletter, our weekly newsletter. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. More on Teddy Roosevelt and football with John Elfner after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to John Elfner and the improbable story of a president and the survival of one of our great national sports. So in 1905, just as Roosevelt was beginning his second term, he saw that football was facing a truly existential crisis. Major schools had already canceled their programs, and the Ivy Leagues, most notably Harvard, were considering canceling their programs. I just want to take a moment to emphasize how important it is that the president of Harvard, Charles Elliott, wanted to cancel his football program. It may be hard to imagine today, but Harvard was once the premier college football program in the country. It was also one of the first, playing its inaugural game in 1873. They won the national championship in 1890, 1898, and again in 1899. And Harvard routinely saw their players named as first-team All-American selections. Because professional football was yet to be well-established, the college game received enormous national attention, and Harvard was at the top of that list. When Harvard and Yale played each year, it was simply known as the game. And just two years earlier, Harvard had built a massive stadium at the cost of $200,000. In today's money, that would be about $5 million. Despite that enormous expense, the president of Harvard was eager to ban the game because of its brutality. And if Harvard, one of the oldest and most successful programs in the nation, was to banish its program, many schools would follow, perhaps leading to the end of football entirely. But this is a problem for Roosevelt. Roosevelt believed that college football, brutal as it was, provided a training ground for our nation's young men. John J. Miller explains. It's not merely entertaining, but he thinks it's a positive social good because he thinks sports turn boys into men. They teach things that you cannot learn in classrooms or from books. They teach that when you get knocked down, you should stand back up. They teach you how to win with dignity, how to lose with grace, how to work with teammates, how to take orders from a coach. They teach you so many things you cannot learn in other ways. Roosevelt firmly believed that developing these qualities as young men would serve these men if they were ever called to war. Pat Williams explains. Truly, I think he saw football as a battle without guns, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders, that it it developed physical and mental toughness in young men. And Roosevelt knew more than a little about battle. In 1898, when the Spanish-American War broke out in Cuba, Roosevelt was serving as assistant secretary to the Navy, perhaps the safest government post in all of Washington, D.C. But Roosevelt didn't want to be in Washington during the war. He quit his cushy post and founded, funded, and recruited his own military unit called the Rough Riders. He craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. Uh, He raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west. And he put this group together, and uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up to... San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired, and TR was right in the middle of it. Any guesses on what past experience many of those Rough Riders had that qualified them for service in the eyes of Roosevelt? That's right, football. 
So Roosevelt had experienced war, and by living the strenuous life, before his time with the Rough Riders, he was ready for it. But how would America's young men be prepared for the next war? Roosevelt believed football was a place where the skills needed in war, teamwork, leadership, overcoming obstacles, and even conquering territory could be developed. So here's Roosevelt's challenge. He loves the idea of the strenuous life, not only for himself, but for young men. Football is a part of that and something he supports. But many major universities are getting ready to drop their programs, and his own son had just had his nose broken in a game. What should he do? Well, in true Rooseveltian fashion, TR used his bully pulpit to call the presidents and coaches of the Ivy League schools together to change the rules. Here again is Brian and Gracia. In October of 1905, he calls in Walter Camp, as well as a number of other individuals associated with Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They show up at the White House, they meet for about two hours, and they essentially come out there with an agreement. We are going to do something to clean up football. So that's it, right? Roosevelt saved football. Wrong. After the meeting, nothing happened until a pair of highly publicized tragedies occurred on the football field. Right around Thanksgiving, there are two really important games. There's a game between New York University and Union College in which one of the players for Union College, Harold Moore, actually dies from injuries sustained within the game. And on the same day, there's there's a broken nose on a late tackle uh, in the Harvard-Yale game. And it's kind of those two events on the same day that really, really push university leaders when they say, we need to do something about this. And they do. They gather together and start to make major rule changes. And these are the same men that Roosevelt gathered at the White House just months earlier who initially didn't want to make those changes. Roosevelt went so far as to send representatives to the meeting to oversee those changes. The single most important rule change of 1906 was the legalization of the forward pass. The reason why they decided to legalize the forward pass, I think it's going to be safer. They said it's going to open up the field of play. Players are going to be spread out more on the field than they currently are. There's going to be fewer bad tackles. And it worked. Fatalities reduced year after year and made the game safer for the players and also made the game more exciting. Deaths on the field started to drop. The claims of gladiatorial brutality made by the prohibition of football movement were undercut by many of the rule changes. Not only is the forward pass added, but other rules are introduced to make the game less brutal. They made the personal foul a heavily penalized infraction. They created uh, a neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. And they were all done with the idea toward improving player safety. And the threats to football's existence receded. Schools like Harvard, whose president was a leader of the prohibition of football movement, abandoned the goal of canceling their football program. And the rules committee that changed the rules of football later became what we know today as the NCAA. They continued to tinker with the rules of football over time, making it more and more safe until the time came when a death in football was regarded as a freak accident. So did Teddy Roosevelt really save football? Roosevelt certainly made saving football from the prohibition of football movement a national issue. And without that, who knows how effective that movement might have become. Banning a very popular national sport seems unlikely, but banning the sale and manufacture of alcohol seems far more unlikely, and look where that ended up. Regardless, Coach Ted Venegas still ranks Roosevelt as his favorite president, especially when he has calling a pass play. Let's go Hero Vegas Sky on one. Set, hike. Quarterback drops back, he rolls right. The man down the middle, he sees it, passes up, it's caught, caught by the touchdown. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. And that pass couldn't happen without Teddy Roosevelt. 
So like I said, Teddy Roosevelt saved football. And great job on that, and that's John Elfner, and he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, and that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. And John's been teaching history for 20 years to high school students, and my dad was a lifer as a high school history teacher, basketball coach, ended up being a superintendent of schools. But his favorite thing to do was to be on the court with the boys or taking a road trip and seeing American action in history and making it come alive. So I'm grateful to a dad who I got to do that with, field trips to Gettysburg and Vicksburg and the rest. And by the way, that was John Miller's voice you heard, and he's a journalism teacher at Hillsdale College, which sponsors our This Days in History. And by the way, football's ready for another big rule change. A lot of people think changing the zone defense will end all these brain injuries. We'll see if that happens, but it's the zone defense more than likely that's the cause of so many of these brain injuries. But what a story this is. The President of the United States intervening to save a game he thought prepared boys for war. Teddy Roosevelt's story. Football story. Here on Our American Story. stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and we love the intersection of music and story and the story of a song and by the way you can go to our american network and hear all of our stories of a song this one is about a beach boy gem called good vibrations let's hear the guitars please in the is it possible for a song to be simultaneously revered and underappreciated if so Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys falls into this category. Okay, that's fine. Let's make it. Take one. Pal, let's go, man. Here we go. Play hard and strong all the way. Music critics have celebrated the song, voting it number one in Mojo's Top 100 Records of All Time and number six on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. The song has been cited as a forerunner to the Beatles' A Day in the Life in 1967 and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody in 1975.
Good Vibrations is composed by Brian Wilson with lyrics by Mike Love. Released on October 10th, 1966, just five months after their revolutionary opus, Pet Sounds, the single was an immediate critical and commercial hit, topping record charts in several countries including the US and the UK. Good Vibrations later became widely acclaimed as one of the finest and most important works of the rock era. Over 90 hours of tape was consumed during the dozen-plus sessions across four different studios. This process was reflected in the song's several dramatic shifts in key, texture, instrumentation, and mood. Good Vibrations was the costliest single ever recorded at the time of its release. Here's the story of Good Vibrations, beginning with music journalist and, as a side note, the man credited with giving Jimi Hendrix the idea of setting fire to his guitar, Keith Altham. Good Vibrations was just the, the, the perfect encapsulation of what he was doing with pet sounds, I suppose. It was a mixture of all those sounds and things that he had accumulated for pet sounds and put into a condensed version for a single. Here's Beach Boy, Bruce Johnston. I think if Good Vibrations had been on pet sounds, uh, we would probably own the galaxy by now. You know, I mean, what do you do after Good Vibrations, if the, and if, especially if it's, on that, if it's on that album? But uh, it didn't work out that way. Here's Brian Wilson. I managed to get Pet Sounds with Tony, and then I said to Tony, I'm going to write a song all about Good Vibrations. My mother told me when I was a kid that dogs pick up vibrations from people, and if they feel threatened, they bark. Yeah, I'm picking up good vibrations. Mike, Mike came up. I said, "This song's called Good Vibrations," and he goes, "I'm picking up good vibrations." He wrote that bass line. Here's Mike Love. Good vibrations was done in sections at different studios. It took me six weeks for to get, have it produced. Here's recording engineers Bruce Botnick and Mark Linnett. This is definitely gold star. Uh, when it because when it makes the cut. I, I can definitely hear the sound of Sunset Sound on the drums. It's much drier, not as roomy. One, two, three, four. On this part, the, the cellos and the theremin are overdubbed. And Brian also pulled out a large portion of the, of the three-track. There's a piano in there that, that he pulled out as much as he could. And again, mixed it down to mono. And... And this is the same verse from Gold Star. Did he repeat the verse? Yeah, I believe and so. made a copy? Yeah. And the choruses are definitely repeated. Yeah. And here's the piano. And a juice harp. That was an overdub. And finally, there was a composite of, uh, that became the actual track to Good Vibrations. And he gave it to me in the form of an acetate, which I was able to play. And uh, I actually dictated the uh, lyrics to Good Vibrations uh, on the way to the studio to my then wife, Suzanne. And uh, I, I 
wrote this poem. I love the colorful clothes she wears and the way the sunlight plays upon her hair. That kind of thing. And I came up with, I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations to to paraphrase the, the bass part, which is... So it was... I came up with the words and that hook, and Brian did the brilliant track. So it was a true collaboration. Here's A&R executive at Capitol Records, Carl Ingeman. Good Vibration was a record that took him a long time to make in between uh, different albums and things like that. And to me, Good Vibrations is perhaps the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Well, the, the night we cut Good Vibrations, the, the guys had a really lot of fun. You know, They really liked it. They said, Brian, this is going to be a number one record. Ah. I love the colorful clothes Let's take a walk through this number one hit. The first verse is built around an ethereal descending chord progression in E flat minor. And then we hit the first chorus. The chorus starts in G flat major. And then with each repetition, the chorus climbs upward, providing a counterpoint to the verse's descending chord progression. Then we go back to the verse. Check out the bass line. Listen to how high it is. Softly smile, I know she must be kind. Instead of just playing the root of the main chord in the song, the bass is actually creating a counter melody. At the time, hardly anyone was using bass lines in this way. After this verse, we return to the chorus, carried by a new instrument called an electrotheremin that inhabited the good vibrations and the Beach Boys' patented harmony. Then we hit the first of two interludes, or episodic digressions. This section is greeted with a sudden tape splice which is a clear edit between two sessions that were recorded at different times in the studios. This part of the song might normally be called a bridge, but instead of cutting back to the chorus like a bridge might, we cut into the second part of the episodic digression. This tape splice is even more dramatic than the first. Just as we're floating through the air, a five-part harmony wakes us back up as we punch into the chorus. This chorus starts in the reverse direction, beginning in B-flat and working down back to where we started out in G-flat. 
series of harmonies, juddering cellos, and the electrotheremin carry us out. Good Vibrations was dubbed a pocket symphony, and its production elements and symphonic structures would be echoed in dozens of songs in the decades to come. So, whenever you're talking about the greats in rock, be sure to give Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys a little love. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and for anyone who thinks the Beach Boys were lightweights, well, think again after hearing that story. And by the way, listening to our story on multi-track recordings and the battle between the Beatles and the Beach Boys for production ascendance. And my goodness, it was the Beach Boys who affected the Beatles and not the other way around. And by the way, to hear our stories of a song, go to ouramericannetwork.org. There you will find the story of George on my mind, Light My Fire by the Doors, Jesus Take the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Why Me, My Lord by Chris Christopherson, and so many others. Combining always the arts of storytelling and music here on Our American Stories, the story of a song. Mm-hmm.